Hello, and welcome to Voice of the Rebellion, a Star Wars podcast. Fly casually with hosts Mark and Kevin as we tackle a variety of topics, bring some of the latest news, answer hard-hitting questions, and explore the various themes in that galaxy far, far away. Welcome to Voice of the Rebellion, episode 38. We're back. I'm Mark, and I wanted to talk to you about the show and what we're going to be expecting moving forward. Um, I've decided to resurrect the podcast after a really long hiatus with a new co-host. We're going to change the format a little bit to accommodate recording remotely. So there's not going to be the trivia, because previously we were using these Star Wars Trivial Pursuit for all those questions, and doing that remotely just makes things a lot more difficult. But we will have a new little topic at the end covering information about the vast universe of Star Wars. But without further ado, let's introduce our new co-host. Kev is a longtime Star Wars fan and is going to bring a new voice to the show, especially because he's a bit more critical of the sequels than Dave and I were. But he's got a lot of great insights, so I'm not going to hold that against him. Kev, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks for bringing me on as a co-host. I'm excited to do it. Um, I love talking about Star Wars. I very much enjoy, um, you know, you said I'm more critical and as part of Gaz put it in uh, Andor, the provocative exchange of ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love disagreeing with people. I love arguing about the sequels or the prequels or anything in Star Wars, but I love to keep it as constructive as possible. Yeah, um, and that's, that's what's important because, like, me and the previous co-host were, like, would get, like, really, really frustrated with people who were criticizing it, but it was because most of the criticism was so just heavy-handed and didn't actually, like, didn't make sense. Whereas I've talked to you about the sequel trilogy and got a lot of really great insights for um, for what, you know, we could have expected and things we would have changed that. So um, I'm looking forward to discussing that in the future. Um, but this episode is going to be focused primarily on uh, Andor and the themes of Andor. And this may end up being a bit of a long one because we've both got a lot to say. But before we do that, uh, let's go into what would normally be the news segment. Now, in this case, uh, the news, we are not going to be really covering it too much in this episode because um, we're going to be recording a few of these episodes before putting them out, just sort of get into our, our flow and get into our groove again. Um, so we want to make sure we've got a couple episodes like stocked up. So don't want to throw out any news that's going to be irrelevant before too long. So, um, Kev, what kind of Star Warsy stuff have you really been um, enjoying beyond Andor? Well, um, you know, not as much as I used to. Um, like when I was younger, I used to just read Star Wars books back to back to back, uh, constantly playing the games, constantly reading comics. Uh, I've fallen out of it lately in a way that kind of makes me sad. And I'm one of the things I'm really hoping with this podcast is that it helps me uh, like re-energize um, diving into all these things. So, uh, you know, outside of Andor, um, I mostly just sit down with my bud and, you know, we'll talk about Star Wars. Uh, I dipped a little bit into Tales of the Jedi um, 
really enjoyed the Dooku episodes. Yeah, the Dooku episodes seemed better fleshed out than the Ahsoka ones. The Ahsoka ones seemed more there just so that they could have more Ahsoka. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first hot take of me as a co-host, I'm kind of tired of Ahsoka. Uh, I'm not yeah. going to lie about it. I think she's a great character, but... When all the content is all Ahsoka, yeah. Let's, in the same way that people say, let's let's kind of move on from the Skywalker mm-hmm. saga. Let's let's start looking at other stuff. I would love to see the next season of Tales of the Jedi have characters who aren't even from the prequel era, like go back even further. Let's like some High Republic, some um, some like Knights of the Old Republic era stuff would be pretty cool to see. As yeah, well. I was. I was really hoping for like a straight anthology series, um, just focusing on completely new random characters from all over. Um, because that Dooku, those Dooku episodes could have been put all into a single episode. They could have. And then you've got then you've got like six other episodes you could have done from all over the, the universe. But um, I this last summer went to Disneyland and went to the Galaxy's Edge. That sounds pretty cool. How was it? It was amazing. It was incredibly immersive. Um, it felt like it, it really, really felt like you were on a different planet. It was really cool. Um, there wasn't like set meet and greet times or anything. You would just see characters there wandering around, mm-hmm. um, which was pretty cool. The um, The two rides are really cool one of them is um you're piloting the millennium falcon um and if you aren't the pilots then it's kind of boring like the gunners you're just, supposed, you're just pushing a button to to shoot the cannons and then the engineers are occasionally supposed to they'll be told hit the buttons just as the buttons light up um but being the pilot is, is a really really cool experience and then the rise of the resistance is an incredible ride um that basically turns the the waiting in line itself into a ride. Um, there's a full hologram of Ray that shows up. Like it, it looks like an actual hologram, which is really really cool. Um, they brought back basically the entire cast. I think they filmed it while they were filming the last film. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got the entire cast there, um, like posed there in the in the cockpit of his ship, like on a view screen. Um, you actually get onto a transport. And the tran- you feel the transport take off and everything. You step onto the transport outside. And then those same doors open. Like I was expecting the, the doors on the other side to open. And oh look at the different place. You know, mm-hmm. The same doors that you walked in outside open. And you're in an, a uh, first order hangar bay. Like. And you know I had to of course go out and look up how they did it and everything. But it, yeah. like the entire way getting to the actual ride is a ride and a story in and of itself, which I thought was really, really cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, I've heard that Disney's been trying to do stuff like that, like mm-hmm. at all their parks, because I mean, obviously people are spending a lot of money and mm-hmm. they don't want to go spend most of their day there waiting in line for whatever ride. So making the line part of the experience is such a good idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was my like big, big Star Wars thing that um, has happened to me as of late um definitely going to be incorporating more of bot 2 into my um star wars role-playing game yeah sessions because it's a it's a cool planet when you're actually like there amongst everything 
So speaking of your upcoming uh, Star Wars campaigns, what would you like to try to incorporate into that um, story that you're going to be telling or some elements or whatever from what we've been seeing out of Andor? Yeah, so um, I'm currently, it was I, before Andor started, I was actually running a Star Wars campaign um, at home. And that is using the Dark Rider campaign, um, which takes place on the very edge of the galaxy. You're like chasing an Imperial moth um, into like the far reaches of space as things get like weirder and weirder out on the further and further edges. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was kind of disappointed when Andor started and I got so invested in the story of Andor. And I'm like, none of this actually works very well. So I thought oh, I could run an online game. So I'm actually incorporating quite a few elements of it um it's actually going to be two different groups so one group is going to be uh rebels we're actually going to start on a prison ship and there will be a prison break on the ship but it's Mm -hmm. much much simpler than the big prison break at andor um and then another i'm gonna have another group that's gonna meet occasionally basically whenever that group is available to be playing isb agents who are hunting for those rebels so as the rebels do stuff in the universe, then that information will get fed back to the ISP, who then are going to tr- be trying to track it down. And occasionally we may end up with sessions where the IS- uh, one or two ISP agents are actually there for the session yeah. as a player to like confound the players and try to stop them. That sounds pretty cool. Um, I have enough trouble running just my one... like fantasy tabletop game so i can't imagine trying to spin plates for two different campaigns yeah um, but that sounds awesome the nice thing is i'm going to be using the same rule set for both yeah um so it should be a lot easier and, and the star wars d6 rule system is so simple that it makes it a lot easier to um to run things even on the fly i feel like i really missed the boat on the west End game stuff uh it makes me very sad it was my first role-playing game, um, and then the D20 version was my first game that I ever ran, um, but the D6 system like just has a tender place in my heart, and over the years I've been steadily purchasing and buying up anything I can to try to eventually have the complete collection. I don't know well, if I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about the Star Wars D6 system. I don't think so. It's it's universally just, loved yeah it's just a great system um i think a, a lot of it is like nostalgia but it does it just the simplicity of the rules really lends itself to making it feel like you're playing star wars so all right let's go ahead and from here get into the topic So today we're going to be talking about Andor and the themes of Andor. We're not going to be going like an episode by episode breakdown. Um, we had actually considered doing that, but then we realized it's much more interesting to talk about how the themes play out in Andor. It seems that the main theme of Andor overall is how people survive in a world of fascism and how people who um, are w- more willing to keep their heads down and let it just pass them by are radicalized. I think Andor does such a good job 
just within the first handful of episodes of telling you exactly what this whole show is going to be about not the story, but the, the theme of it. Um, it, you know, it shows you all these different facets from these different points of view um, of what fascism is and how it affects people. Um, and it's just so it's unapologetically political in a way that I don't think Star Wars ever has really been before. Um, yeah. Even considering the original trilogy, you know, George Lucas behind the scenes, you know, the original trilogy is about fascism being bad, mm-hmm. um, but it's in such a grand way. Like these are the bad guys. These are the good guys, you know, do your thing. And George mm-hmm. Lucas behind the scene has said, you know, well, the empire represents you know, largely like Western colonialism. Um, the rebels are almost a direct analogy for like the Viet Cong um, because he was, you know, an outspoken critic of the war in Vietnam, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were very political in a way that was able to appeal to a lot of people with George Lucas in the background saying, well, this is obviously about America and imperialism and colonialism, and et cetera. And or on the other hand is in your face about its themes. Um, yeah. It, it is grabbing you by the shirt and saying colonialism destroys people. It destroys their culture. Um, it leads to fascism, like the erosion of communities and, you know, trust between neighbors. Like that is how these things happen. Um, to the point that, you know, outright rebellion ends up happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, an interview with uh, Denise Gao, who plays Adrian Miro. Um, she talks about how her character is sort of supposed to be, you're supposed to be cheering for her until you realize, like, until it clicks in your head and has to keep clicking every once in a while. Oh, by the way, just for, just in case you forgot, she is a fascist. Like, yes, she's like, a girl boss fighting her way to the top in a world of men. But in the end, like, he's like, don't forget, this is a fascist here. <laughs> um, I have a quote from her. She says, it's really important to me that there are no factions outlined. It's important that Daedra feels like the heroine of her story, and that's why she's scary. She's a fascist. She believes in something, but it is fascism. At first, you have to root for her. You feel like you're rooting for her, and then you realize, no matter how strong a woman she is in a world of men, you realize she's just a fascist in a world of fascists. Power corrodes everyone, men and women. She never apologizes, believes in everything she does, and truly believes she will save the galaxy, so she is credible and frightening. Cassian could also be a villain if you think about it. He kills both at the beginning of the series and the movie. He's the villain of someone else's story. I, oh man, I just think that that's such a good approach to Mm -hmm. telling the story um you know particularly from like the villain perspective yeah Uh, yeah because i i think one of the things that andor is doing so so right that a lot of star wars media um, especially in recent times i feel has gotten very wrong is that you know andor's villains aren't 
these mustache twirling caricatures trying to like tie people to railroad tracks and run them over the train. You know, they are realistic, believable characters. Um, but I think the most important part about them is that they're good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Like they are real people with real motivations who are actually good and capable at what they do, mm-hmm. which makes them just that much more terrifying. But it also makes it that much more satisfying when the heroes overcome them yeah. despite that. What's really great is like you just you just said everybody's good at their jobs. It's great seeing that like the Empire's very good at their job. They have tracked down the, this uh Krieger. Oh, and by the way, um we are recording this before the final episode. So we we're eleven episodes in at the time of recording, so you know, we may end up learning other things the final episode but um the empire finds out about krieger and but they are good enough that they're like no we need to let it happen and not capture them now so they continue on but then at the same time the the rebellion side is good enough that they're like no we need luthan's like no we we now need to double play that back on them and allow this to happen like everybody is everybody is playing chess and everybody is playing three moves ahead at least like every there's nobody who's just flying by the seat of their pants unless you're you know except for krieger uh, yeah and right. and andor too but andor is like sort of the hapless person who can only think one step ahead of themselves. well he uh he's one of the things about andor is that even from the first episode and, you know, getting into the point of those flashbacks at the beginning, he is a person who is swept up in circumstance mm-hmm. at every major turn of his life. It is something that is yeah. out of his control mm-hmm. and he just kind of has to ride with it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I well, think he's is also, he's also incredibly selfish. Yes. Everybody around him in that first episode knows that Andor's goal in friendship is to get something out of somebody else. He is only looking out for himself and trying to I mean, except for his mom, of course, but he is just trying to get something from somebody, and everybody's sort of accepting that. Like, we've all had those friends who they are the person who you know that in the end, they're simply looking out for themselves, and but they're they're nice enough to have around. You just let them. Um, and that's what he starts off as. But it's really nice because they have to build up the place where he is at Rogue One. Where he is fully dedicated to the cause. Mm -hmm. But then Rogue One also gives him a story arc of in when you see him at the beginning of Rogue One on the rings of Caprine, he kills a rebel because he might get caught. Like, he's still looking out for himself, but he's now doing it for a reason. He has he tells um, Jin that rebellions are built on hope. I just recently rewatched Rogue One because I mean, as you should. Um, he tells uh, Jin that rebellions are built on hope, but he has no help, hope himself. He's a man without hope in Rogue One until the end when he finally gives up everything. I think the Cassian that we see in Rogue One is like the end game of what. Luthen's ideology turns people into. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
I, I do think that he, by that time, I do think he's a true believer. He's all in for the cause, but he is pragmatic to a fault. Um, he sees this rebellion in terms of like black and white. We have to do what we have to do. Take nothing on faith, nothing on chance. Um, you know, you tie off your loose ends immediately yeah. or else you get got and this whole thing crumbles. And then Jen comes along and she's like, dude, you have to trust me on this. And, you know, obviously he does. And without that trust and without that, essentially a leap of faith, um, none of, none of anything else works. And what's interesting is that Jen begins Rogue One in the same place that Cassian begins Andor, where when they say, you know, they talk about seeing the, the flag of the Empire fly across the galaxy, she says, not a mm-hmm. problem if you never look up. That's exactly what Cassian's like mindset is at the very beginning. And she changes because of her encounter with Cassian, and he changes because of encounter with her. Mm-hmm. So they, they end up changing each other, and that's what allows them to get to the place where they're hugging each other on the beach as the world ends. I think it's really interesting um, to spin off of, of that um, observation of where we see Cass at the beginning of the show. Um, I've seen, you know, some discourse talking about like, well, what's the point of the flashbacks? What do they really do for the show? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they set the stage perfectly for who he is as a person and what his life has been like up to this point. Um, You know, because for one, you know, we see that we have always seen, we've always known Star Wars does not have a prime directive. Um, Mm -hmm. There is no form of non-interference that we've ever seen um anytime we see like native cultures or even like tribal cultures or anything like that you know there's always like spaceships in the background or people have built a city just like right nearby um so that i guess at some point in star wars history there's just like hey we've got hyperspace we're just gonna go wherever we want to whoever we come across can either keep up or die Yeah, um well what i like about these flashbacks in particular is that it's, you know, it's a, uh, a proto separatist ship, um, but it doesn't really explain that in the show. There's an interview that kind of follows up on it later. This happens before the clone wars even breaks out. Yeah. So because this I is a the separatist logo on it. And it was like, okay, yep. we're establishing time. But yeah, I saw that interview and no, this is before. Yeah, it's it's like right before. Um, so these people are still Republic. They are still Republic members. And, you know, they're carrying a deadly virus or something and the ship has crashed. Well, um, you know, we've seen this strip mine, this massive ecological disaster. We see this like tribe of children um, where we only see teenagers and they're all wielding hodgepodge scavenged bits and pieces and mismatched clothes and stuff. Um, we don't see any parents. We don't see any, you know, any, it, it looks like they're just dealing with the fallout of some huge disaster. They're just living there. Um, the ship crashes. Yeah. Like a lost boys. Um, and so the ship crashes, we get the events of that. And then when, uh, Marva and Clem come in, Marva's like, 
we or Clem's like, we got to go. The Republic's almost here and they're just going to kill anybody that's down here to cover this up. And I think that gives us such a good perspective um, for something that I've wanted for a really long time uh, for Star Wars with the prequels. And that's to just muddy up the waters as much as possible and show that not everybody on the Separatist side is wrong. Separatists aren't wrong. The Republic is not wrong for what they want, but there's good and bad on both sides. The Clone Wars TV show gets into it a little bit, but just at like the most surface level possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this sets the stage for a Cassian who he's seen the Republic as a kid and they just completely uh, like fucked his world up Mm -hmm. literally. Well, not, not only that, we see him then when he's older and it's not the, it's not Imperial stormtroopers who execute his father, Clem. It's it's like the end of Revenge of the Sith um, clone troopers who do yeah. it. Yeah. Who, um, you know, we don't know if that's if that's post establishment of the Empire or still Republic era clone troopers. Exactly. And so we just get this perfect setting of of Andor as a person who has no allegiance. Why would he? Why should he care? Um, you know, one flag is just as bad as the other to him. Um, you know, it's just, it's such a good setting, uh, for what to expect from the show, just like right out the gate. And it, it gives you a really good appreciation for the metamorphosis that his character goes through over the course of the series. Um, I think one of the, I think the show has very many like thesis statements. I think one of the best ones is when um, Bell says that everybody's got their own rebellion. Yeah. Everybody's got their own reason for, for doing what they do. And, you know, this whole show is just that, that cracking open and that radicalization and that exploration of what makes Cassian become a true believer. There's not a single person who is on the side of the rebellion in the show who has, the same reason for being in the rebellion or or way of performing rebellion it's you know rarely as simple as just like i'm a good guy and i want to fight the bad guys yeah you know um it's well, and, okay good oh i was gonna shift over um talking about another thing about about andor besides being a man without a purpose He's also a man who's running out of time, who has no idea that he's running out of time. The, one of the very first shots we see of him as an adult says five BBY. Yes, exactly. And BBY is before the Battle of Yavin. The Battle of Yavin is mere days after his death. We know that this man is a man on borrowed time who only has a short amount of time to live and he has no idea but it's like not to get all like uh, Hamilton on it but he's living like a man who's running out of time but he doesn't know that he's running out of time he uh, he man I just I liked I liked Andor from Rogue One but this expansion of who his character is as a prequel is so yeah. good. Like he's just, he's a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just, 
like this walking chaos who's so good at all these different things that he does because he has to constantly shift and adapt and deal with these new circumstances that he finds himself in. Um, and Diego Luna is just so good at, at portraying that too, as just being this guy that absolutely does not trust anybody. He -hmm. doesn't want to get involved in anybody's shit. And as soon as he gets the least bit involved in someone's shit, he's like, I'm, I'm done. I want out. I just want my money and I want to go home. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed this, but his prison sentence was six years. If he had served his prison sentence, he would have survived. Him escaping from the prison actually leads to his death directly. Uh, I did notice the prison sentence. It did not click with me that we're five years away from Battle of Yavin. We're five years away, uh, and he had six years on his prison sentence. Now, we now know, you know, with the whole thing, like, he was going to yeah. end up serving a lot more than the than six years, but, like... That's also assuming he lived through those six years. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's a pretty brutal place to be. Um, yeah. And that was one of the nicer prisons, too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, man, I didn't... I didn't connect those dots at all. Um, wonder how different things would have gone if he had never escaped. Yeah, because I mean, they probably wouldn't have gotten rid of the Death Star. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so. I think that's a really interesting thing too. That's so it's almost non-existent in this show, um, but it's such a core theme of Star Wars is like destiny and fate, and like mm-hmm. the right people or sometimes the wrong people being at the right place at the exact time that they need to be. Um, and I think throwing that five BBY up at the beginning of the show is, you know, is that. Um, yeah. And like you just mentioned, if Cassian had never broken out of prison, like, you know, he he would have lived past Rogue One. But would the Rebellion have lived past Rogue One? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I actually did a, a Twitter thread on this the other day that Andor is the story of Jonah from the Old Testament. That... There is a destiny for him to fulfill. He is brought in to become a member of the rebellion, and instead, he just takes his credit and runs. He refuses mm-hmm. that destiny. So, what does the force have to do? It has to get him rounded up by some stormtroopers and thrown in prison for just walking down the beach. It is grabbing him and dragging him back towards his destiny, time and time again, being like, "No." You can't get away from this. You have to keep moving forward. And by him continually, like him being there in the the underwater prison is like being in the belly of the whale, just like sitting there and waiting until finally he's able to burst free. And now he doesn't really have a choice other than to join the rebellion. Even though he, even now at episode 11, he still doesn't realize it. Like he just thinks he's going to be able to sneak away and go see his mom's funeral. But mm-hmm. everybody is going to be there to drag him back into that rebellion. Yeah, I think I think what we'll see in the finale is, you know, that that final. I, I think he realizes it already. Uh, I just think that he hasn't allowed himself to acknowledge it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He cannot untangle himself from this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, he is going to have to embrace the things that are happening here. 
Um, I think part of it's going to be that he feels that he can't get out of it for one, um, mm-hmm. because either the empire or the rebellion is constantly going to be coming after him afterwards, no matter what. But, you know, we've been seeing him get radicalized um, more and more and more. You know, we started off where he was just willing to dip out on everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the second arc, he connected with, you know, Nemec and Mm -hmm. uh, Senta. He even connected with Skeen up until a certain point, you know, he looks genuinely sad at the end of that arc when Skeen pulls his bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, he had, he had all the reason in the world to just take his money and run at that point. But he went into the tent, made, tried to make his peace with Vel, let her know what was going on, gave the Kyber back as a show of trust. He didn't have to do that, but he's, that shell's breaking more and more. He's connecting more and more with people around him that he doesn't want to connect with. And then of course he links up with his best buddy, Melshi in the prison. Um, and even, you know, they even do the bro hug, uh, on Niamos five, I think is (laughs) space Miami. Yeah. Um, which was apparently filmed in like, in like London uh, or something, right? Leeds or something like that. It was somewhere on the coast in England. They just, like CGI'd in the palm trees and stuff like that, which I was <laughs> surprised at. Uh, but yeah, with um, uh, they made a point to make sure that we saw that Nemec's book was still with him. In episode mm-hmm. eleven, he goes back. He gets he opens that box with the box. Yeah, they play the the audio book for him for a second, just so that we, the audience, know he still has that with him to help keep pushing him forward. So. <clears throat> To pivot us away from Andor as a character and his motivations, mm-hmm. get us back into the po- political side of the show. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I that I think just works so well in Andor is that it's, um, it, it's not showing us like these huge atrocities or you know stormtroopers kicking in doors or or anything like that. Um, we're not seeing the Death Star blow up Alderaan, right? It's showing us the insidiousness and the absolute pervasiveness of just everyday fascism. Um, you know, we're the corporate police, the surveillance state getting spied on, um, encouraging your communities to, to rat each other out, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Just little, little chips over and over and over and over just little erosions. Um, and so like, what Luthen says something to the, you know, to the extent of like, uh, you know, the empire's like choking us. Their grip is so light that we're forgetting that they're choking us or, or something like that. I don't remember the exact quote, um, but basically just saying that like they're moving slow enough on stripping away rights that people are getting complacent with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And before you know it, you don't have anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. I think Andor has done so well demonstrating that in a in a very believable world building sort of way. Uh, you know, like with the Aldani going to see the eye, mm-hmm. the Imperial garrison there, the the commandant is like, Yeah, we set up a you know, a bunch of like entertainment suites and stuff along the path for their their religious ceremony. So we 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 weed them off as they're coming up. We're just constantly encouraging them to 
be distracted from their their culture and their heritage um and it, it works is yeah. the thing that's yeah. oh and beyond that um i love that it does like andor does nothing makes no attempt to rehabilitate the empire mm-hmm. which is i think is something that's Star Wars really flirts pretty dangerously with mm. in a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, maybe maybe they're not so bad. Maybe, you know, the people who are working for them aren't all that bad. What they what they do is they bring up characters who are Imperials who are secretly working against them. Mm-hmm. But those people aren't just like they aren't just like dipping their toes into rebellion. They aren't like just willing to like feed a little bit of information. It's if you are going to rebel, you have to do it with your whole chest and do it in a way that could lead to not only your death, but the deaths of all your loved ones. Because we see that both with the um, officer on Aldani who's part of the crew. Mm-hmm. And then also with um, this, uh, uh, what's his name? The ISB agent. Uh, who's Lonnie. The, Lonnie. That he has, they both have fully given in to supporting the rebellion, even at the risk of their own lives. And mm-hmm. that's the only way that it can be done. There isn't anybody who's like, you know, I work for the Empire, and maybe they're not so good, but, you know, at least we got a little bit of stability, and that's okay, and then and we see them as a sympathetic character. Anybody who is chosen to question it, once you begin to question it, there's no turning back from questioning it. You, you see it full force in front of your face, and mm-hmm. have to just move forward. Um, ever since you know, Darth Vader, Bride, and the original trilogy getting redeemed and everything. Um, Star Wars has had, you almost have to have the character who's a bad guy that can be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that, that this show is doing is saying, like, you, you do not have to try. Um, like, it's, Andor's not going to go out of his way to try to redeem Cyril or Deidre, mm-hmm. um, yeah. people like Lonnie or um, uh, Lieutenant Gorn, you know, from mm-hmm. Aldani, like these are people that they have to choose for themselves that they that they want out. And even then, you know, Lieutenant Gorn straight up says, like, I suck. I have been complicit in atrocities and I mm-hmm. deserve punishment. Yeah. And I'll do everything I can to to burn this place down on the way out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I'm thankful that it's not trying to, you know, uh, what did I write down? The Galactic Star Cruiser being like, hey, everybody join the First mm. Order and, and rat people yeah. out, you know, like like yeah. it's a fun thing to to cosplay as fascism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this this show is is going beyond just like not doing that. I think that in a lot of ways it's actively saying like doing that is bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I yeah. think, I think that's more, some of the subversion 
of um, the showrunner Gilroy. Um, he had said that the reason why that there was a, there was a brothel in the first episode was to see if he could get away with putting a brothel in a Star Wars show, and he was doing it to challenge Disney. Right, and I think he knows exactly what he's doing by basically saying, "No, you can't just, as you said, cause play fashion." Like Disney, and I mean, even before Disney, Lucasfilm loved going. Oh, you know, they're the they're the bad guys, but they're they're kind of cool, aren't they? Yeah, and, like the you know, like the people who um who are like, man, yeah, the Nazis suck, but they had they had a sense of fashion. Let me tell you. Yeah. It's a, it's like the same thing. They're like, yeah, sure, the Empire is bad, but look at these sleek uniforms. Stormtroopers yeah. are cool. Yeah. And like in the past, I had always wanted to get a set of Stormtrooper armor, and now I'm like, now if I got a set of Stormtrooper armor, I would get it and like bash it up and make it a rebel uniform that was like st- Stormtrooper armor stolen off of a Stormtrooper. Like mm-hmm. if I was doing a, a Stormtrooper cosplay now, I'd be like, no, it'd be a rebel version of Stormtrooper armor because I'm like, I don't really have any interest in dressing up like fashion. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I I was in the military. I did enough marching around. I don't want to throw on some Stormtrooper armor and march around. Like, yeah. if I'm going to do a Star Wars cosplay or something, Mandalorian armor is pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the rebel flight helmet. It's the bee's knees. Yeah. Orange visor. Um, mm-hmm. So, I'm actually uh, a really big fan of the uh, the First Order helmets as well, or not, not the First Order, the, but the the uh, Resistance helmets as well. The more the, angular ones that kind of yeah. have the jaws that come down. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about Mon Mothma because that is the second. Like, if if you were to say like who are the main characters of the show, I would say Andor and Mon Mothma, and then like Luthen is there, but I don't consider him like a main character because main characters are people who change. I don't think Luthen's going to change. I think Luthen is going to be the exact person he told us he was in his speech up until the moment when he finally gets captured or killed by the Empire. He has no reason to change. Mon Mothma it's great because we're watching as she's realizing the depth of depravity that she's going to have to sink to in order to continuing to continue to carry on this rebellion like she was warned by Luthen that this is what we have to do and now she's beginning to realize it as she's fallen deeper and deeper into debt and now has a missing 400k in credits that she's gonna have to get this crime lord on her side for I think Mon Mothma is a super what she's become in this new you know new canon or whatever Mm -hmm. you know um the non-legends version of mon mothma Mm -hmm. what's so interesting about her is that um the place they're going with her is somebody who has these strong morals and has these strong ethics and has a very strong outlook and opinion on on what the galaxy should look like and what legislation should look like and the fact that she is basically been put in the position of being like the de facto leader of the rebellion Mm -hmm. means that she also has to be tied to some very dark things because the rebellion does not succeed and look good at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not yeah. always anyways. And that's that's what drives her division with Saw. Saw is too extreme. And she's like, dude, the things that you're doing, we can't justify. Mm-hmm. We cannot take what you've done and then look better than the Empire. And that's the whole name of the game. We're fighting this war, but we have to look better than the Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a. I'm just going to read my little paragraph that I wrote about Mon yeah, Mothma. Yeah, go for it. Um, Mon Mothma shows us how ineffectual legislation is in a fascist environment, very particularly liberal centrist legislation. In her own words, she acknowledges that it's merely an annoyance for them at the very worst. Luthen further highlights how complacency is what fa- uh, fascism thrives on and what kills resistance. He pushes back on her in their argument in his little shop when she comes in and she's like, dude, you've gone too far with Aldani. Well, he pushes back and says that they've got people ready to act right now. And if they don't, their network will just wither away. Um, people have to get fired up and they have to act. Because if not, they, they sit around, their circumstances change, they start a family or they get a job or they get in debt or, or whatever. And her, their reason for rebelling changes and they grow complacent. And that's, that's something that I think the character Mon Mothma is very much highlighting for us legislation-wise. Because her first scenes are speaking to an empty Senate. Yeah, Nobody yeah. gives a shit what she's got to say. And yeah. they're they're talking to each other and they're leaving. And she's just like. She wants so bad to be able to fix the galaxy by legislation. Um, mm-hmm. And she knows that it's not going to work that way. In yeah. fact, she was in the Senate when legislation is what put Palpatine in power and changed mm-hmm. the Republic into an empire. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think well, it's very interesting. With the scene in the Senate, it very much established, like, when we hear in A New Hope that the Emperor has dissolved the Senate, we're like, oh, wow, that's terrible. That's the worst thing ever. But what we see is the Senate wasn't really doing anything. The Senate exactly. existed purely in name. It, nobody was doing they were just Everybody was there to collect their paycheck and get money from lobbyists and mm-hmm. pass along any legislation that the emperor wanted. Um, it's mostly empty because nobody is taking their job seriously. There's only a, a few people who actually are, but it's not going to matter because the people who aren't showing up are showing up for the vote that will continue to hand more and more power over to the emperor. And at that point, um, when we're... We're five years before A New Hope. Um, Tarkin says in A New Hope that the Senate has just been dissolved. So if things are this bad five years before that, you have to imagine that when when Palpatine makes his announcement, when it hits the the holonet, you know, the newsreels are running with it. They're like, Palpatine has dissolved the Senate. Mm-hmm. You have to imagine that a ton of people in the galaxy are like, thank God. Yeah, they're not yeah. doing anything anyway. They're just wasting money. Yeah. So it's better to just get rid of them. Yeah. All they were doing was signing off what the Emperor wanted, so why not just let the Emperor do what he wants? Because exactly. you know, there wasn't... I don't imagine there was very many mass protests in the streets when it got dissolved. Yeah. And, you know, that I think that also just goes uh, right along with the themes of Andor. Like, mm-hmm. fascism... Fascism very rarely, like, 
not very rarely, but it doesn't work as well when it grabs power, just like when it just, you know, throws a coup or, you know, it does whatever, you know, as we've kind of seen in real life recently, like mm-hmm. turns out it's a lot harder to just take stuff over. The, the insidiousness of fascism is that it creeps. Yeah. It, yeah. it digs in, it invades spaces and it starts, it starts to twist people. Um, and it just it grips tighter and tighter and tighter and takes more and more and more until you know one day you look around and you're like, well shit, we've lost everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I think something else that I I'm sure that you can edit out how many times I think I say I think Andor is doing well. Um, but. <laughs> Another thing that I think that it's it's showing so well, the team, the writing team, um, you know, everybody involved is they're showing how pervasive fascism can be, how how deep it can ingrain itself and how it can just strip away all these things. But they're also showing how just. In my opinion, they're just showing how piss poor and weak of an ideology fascism really is, mm-hmm. because the kinds of people that fascism attracts they want power and they want money. Yeah. They don't believe really in what they're doing or why they're there. No. And then no. when they start trying to get the next generation of people to be true believers, you get little dipshits like Cyril Karn mm-hmm. who are so full tilt into it that they actually start messing things up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the ideology is just, it's so weak. It doesn't hold any water. Once the corruption well dries up, once people start losing money, they're just like, well, fuck it, dude, I'm out. Like I'm off to the next thing. That's going to get me power or money or, or whatever. And um, the, and fascism, I, when I was watching the trailers for Andor leading up to it, there's that one line that Andor says, like, they're so fat, happy with themselves and it cut and it showed the, um, the imperial officers on Eldani, like with their wine glasses and stuff, and I was like, I really, really hope that they show that it's never the best people. They don't choose the best people no. in fascism. They choose the people who are going to benefit the most, so that they will help prop it up. You have to take the people who are going to most benefit. And so I was kind of hoping that the show would would spend a little bit of time sort of showing how it's just these like rich like arms manufacturers just like getting handed out moftum and stuff who don't have any skill or interest in doing anything. They just are there to be like fat cats and get their stuff and continue to go yes emperor yes emperor and you know i think that um they did a good job in um the last jedi by Mm. like hey look it's just it's all just arms dealers who are running this whole thing Um, rich people don't care who's in charge as long as they can sell sell their product to whoever exactly yeah yeah um so hopefully you know in like in the second season we'll see an advancement in that sort of um, look at everything. And in season two, they said they're going to be doing one er, one year every like two episodes. Mm-hmm. Leading so up into like, Rogue One. Skipping forward, I like I like that idea, but I kind of hope that they 
shifted instead to like one episode every or one one year every three episodes and then you do a third season that is the like the moments leading up to Rogue One. Well, so everything building up to that final point. Here's my thoughts on it. We're yeah. five years BBY. Rogue One happens right before, days before. Mm-hmm. And they want this show to lead right up into Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Sounds like five seasons in a movie to me. Oh, yeah. I would, I would absolutely love that. I just don't see them. No, they for sure won't. Because in the end, it's, it is all about, like, you know, like, quote unquote, like, stock prices and stuff like that because it is this multi billion dollar company. And Andor didn't immediately catch everybody. Like, people weren't paying attention. It's surged now in interest, but I could definitely see them being like, well, you know, the first few episodes didn't really grab onto people, so we don't want to risk it, like, dwindling off over the years. So I I can understand why they're, like, just two seasons, but I would love to at least three, but yeah, five seasons would be incredible. As much as I, I, I'm certain right now that Andor will if it's not going to be my favorite Star Wars thing for a very long time, it will be very, very high on my list. Um, But even with that being said, I'm so much more thankful for a showrunner and a creative team who day one, right out the gate, they're like, here, we're telling a story. It is this long. Yeah. Yeah. Full stop. We're not going to extend it. We're not going to fill it with bullshit. Like Mm -hmm. we know what we want. We know how long it's going to take to tell it this is what we're doing. So even though I would love to have just, you know, a million seasons of Andor, um, the fact that they know what they're doing and where yeah. season two is going. I'm, yeah. I'm very comfortable with that and very excited to see um, how it goes. And star Wars needs to have something to say. Um, me and Gabe previously talked about this, that, I, I can't imagine doing an entire podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, each well, one, ha- each movie has, like, a, a quote-unquote message. There's but, a lot of copy-paste to the Marvel movies yeah. as well. Whereas Star Wars has so many themes and has so much to say about things. Like, I could do an entire Star Wars podcast, even if only episodes 4, 5, and 6 had ever been. Like, it, um, it, there's so much for it to say. So if a, if Star Wars is going to come out and not have a message, a a thing that it's saying, then I don't think it's being effective. Which is why I think things like the Book of Boba Fett really didn't what wasn't as good as it could be because it wasn't really saying anything. I I don't think Book of Boba Fett said anything at all. Um, yeah. I think it I think it had some ideas of what it wanted to say. Mm-hmm. But I think they put a lot of the narrative load on the wrong characters in a way that just really didn't work with the flow. Like, we could talk about this in a different episode, mm-hmm. but the fact that Boba Fett is the audience stand-in was mm-hmm. a huge mistake, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And and I'm more than happy to rant about that for an hour and a half or however long. Um, now, we talk about Star Wars being about something. I completely agree. That's something that I've been thinking about a lot in preparation to sit down and talk about this because Andor has so much that it's saying. Um, and this this is going to be our first uh, co-host disagreement, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why the sequels 
don't work for so many people is because they they largely don't say anything. Um, mm. The Last Jedi has some things that it wants to say, mm. and I think I think that it says some of those things very well. I also believe that it contradicts itself in a lot of its messaging. And again, I'm I'm more than happy to get into that at another point. Mm-hmm. But The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker, whether or not you enjoyed the movies or not, it's, you know, as everybody's personal business, but they are just Star Wars for the sake of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just Star Wars content. Yeah. Um, and and there's, I don't disagree with that. I think, I think the general, like, if you can say that it was about anything, it's about how the refusal to stamp out fascism will always allow it to come back. But that's yes. very surface level and then it doesn't really do much with it. So I, I don't I don't disagree with you. I think that I think that if you had a specific thing that the trilogy was meant to say, um, particularly if you had it a bit stronger to talk about legacy. I, yes, exactly. That's that was where you could have it could have been a lot stronger. Um, it, if the whole trilogy was about legacy, um, the benefits of it, the downsides of it, the expectations of legacy, and even use legacy to tie into uh, the lingering effects of, of just deep-rooted fascism and how it is so tenacious in holding on to people. Mm-hmm. Man, we could have had a, a sequel trilogy as, as good as anything that we've gotten, uh, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, I, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the prequels, but a step down in my opinion. Right. So the prequels, I think are movies that have a great story and a great message. Um, and they're very, very political. George Lucas straight up. is just like, (laughs) George Bush, uh, this is nine 11. Like, yeah, I'm not even going to be subtle about it. And I think that they're, they're so good in what they want to be. The idea of what George was doing is so good. The execution was not great, mm-hmm. um, which I, you know, I think generally the fandom kind of agrees on that. Yeah. Um, and the Clone Wars, you know, did so so much to expand on those ideas, but that was Star Wars. It was about something, mm-hmm. um, and whether it was the time between the trilogies or whatever, you know, there was a big. Fan back, there's going to be fan backlash to every single thing that Star Wars ever does. Ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially with, um, I need to get out and say this in episode one here before I go on some rants about the sequel trilogy. Fandom in it sucks. I'm not one of those guys. They can all, you know, blow off. I don't care. Um, I hate the fandom menace. They ruin everything. They're so loud. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And we've we've been, trust me, we've been pretty outspoken against the fandom menace on here. And by the way, uh, people listening. It's Phantom Menace is what we're talking about, not Phantom Menace. Yeah, I love the Phantom Menace. Yeah. It's my favorite prequel. Um, you know what? I'm not di- going to disagree with you on that. Like, It's so good. I, it does so much world building and so yeah. much heavy lifting for all the themes of the prequels. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually fully I agree with you on that. Um, and we're going to get a lot of people mad because... That's okay. Say, they could be revenge. mad. Who didn't say Revenge of the Sith? But yes. No. Um, Listen. Well, man. I'll save it for another one. Yeah, I got, I got we'll, hot takes for days. Yeah. Okay, we can. Um, we can but yeah, so, it's you were saying. Let's the fandom let's, menace. 
the 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 people out there who are call themselves quote unquote fans, but basically just decided to ruin the entire internet with their very existence by yes. being complete shitheads about um, everything that Disney touched with Star Wars without acknowledging that much of what Disney was doing was carrying on a lot of what had previously been set up to carry on. Yes. Um, and also, the, the legacy stuff needed to... They, there was no way they could have made a series of movies without getting rid of the all of the old legend no. stuff. No, no possible. way. So, speaking of the fandom menace and how much they suck... I really want to talk about Cyril Karn for a second. Yes, yes. To loop us back around to Andor. Yes. Um, our, our mean, naughty, hideous little fascist boy. <laughs> our, our, our sad little Nazi crybaby. Yeah. Um, so I actually think that Cyril is one of the most interesting characters in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I think he makes such a good antagonist mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Um, and I really... I think that he's a tragic character mm-hmm. and I think that he's a victim. Um, I think he's a shithead Nazi who there, there are very thin, narrow avenues for him to redeem himself in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love it if they just never explored it. If Cyril spent the rest of the show being like working as a bureaucratic drone in that sad cubicle, I would have been happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think Cyril brings at the table as a character. Um, we I kind of talked about earlier. He's that that new wave of um, the the next generation of you know fascists. He was a young person growing up at you know throughout the Clone Wars and into the formation of the Empire. Um, he is the person that that there is going to replace the the corrupt bureaucrats, right? And that he's the one who's bought into the propaganda um, to a point of you know, being a little hard on Renacop dude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, there are aspects of him that have been explored in a very subtle way. And I think some of those aspects are how class politics tie into fascism. Because when Cyril goes back home to his mom, they're living in like a little two-bedroom apartment mm-hmm. in on a, level. Level of, a level of Coruscant that is so low that he gets like 20 seconds of sunlight and he sits on his bed. I don't know if, if you caught that, mm-hmm. but he sits on his bed and there's, there's just a, the briefest little time period of like 20 seconds where the sunlight, I don't even know that the sun is actually shining into his window. It may be reflecting off of another building. Um, and it's just this sad, like he's miserable there. You can tell that he's always wanted to get out. He's always wanted to leave. And one of the things that, you know, fascism can do so well is they extend their hand to disenfranchised, sad, angry people. And they say, I can lift you out of that. Yeah, I can give you structure. I can give you a sick ass uniform. I can I can take you places. Yeah. And people buy into it. Hey, you sad little incel. What if we gave you a polo shirt and some khakis? Yes. And then we told you exactly who is to blame for all your problems instead of capitalism being a problem. And the, the tragedy of it is like 
from what we've been able to gather, he's a pretty good little tailor. It's something mm. that he's passionate about. He, you know, does his uniforms. He, he does his own clothing or, you know, modifies it at least. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he could have just been like a happy little decent tailor on Coruscant or something and been perfectly fine. But instead, he was so desperate to get out of the circumstances, to get out of the lower levels, to to do something to, you know, one up his mom, who was always disappointed in him or whatever, mm-hmm. that it just led him down this path of uh, of being a fascist of of being a cop um, Mm -hmm. this corporate you know private police officer Mm -hmm. um who is just goes above and beyond to uphold what he thinks is like law and order um and i I love that he is so justified in what he wants to do Mm -hmm. but the way it's framed in the show the audience is like he is so wrong Mm-hmm. in what he's trying to do and well and believes in himself yeah and i think that with the show's big theme about how fascism radicalizes people i think the same is going to be in his case i think that he is headed to Eric, and i think he's going to I think he's going to bomb the place. I honestly do. I think he's going to show up. He is. He does not trust the Empire to do what, quote-unquote, needs to be done. He thinks that he is the only person who can stop terrible, terrible people. And I honestly think he's going to bomb the place. I think that he has become radicalized in and of himself because he, did. he quote-unquote, did everything he was supposed to do. And he got stuck at a desk job for it and told that he would, that he would be disappeared if he kept pursuing it. He doesn't know that the ISB is on their way there. He assumes that nobody cares. And by him being ignored, he is going to show up at Ferrick and he is going to at least attempt to cause some mass casualty event in order to get to Andor. And all those those filthy, dirty, rust bucket people who did him wrong. Because I agree with that. Because the entire city turned against him. He watched as the entire city turned against him when he and his men showed up. He doesn't see any value in the lives of anybody on that planet. So I'm wondering I'm wondering if they do go with a redemption angle. And what ends up happening is Cyril goes so far in his quest for revenge against Andor, who is his white whale. He's going full Ahab right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that he becomes because we've already seen the the cracks forming, um, where he's like stalking Deidre and she's freaked out. She's clocking him as a security threat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he gets so radicalized that he ends up becoming. I don't know that this is going to happen. I hate making predictions because I hate being wrong. Yeah. But a path that I think they could go is that he becomes so radicalized. Like you said, he, he does like a bombing or or something that, you know, even if it doesn't end up being a mass casualty event, it completely messes up the ISB's plan. Yeah. And he ends up becoming a fugitive. <laughs> um, 
and like that's how he maybe not gets redeemed but gets pushed to the other side is because he has no other choice um yeah but i i really don't get the vibe that they're gonna redeem him he seems so laser focused on his revenge um i i mean i honestly i don't know where they're gonna go with him and i love that about the show yeah yeah um one thing uh one one other thing about like a different aspect of fascism that the show touched on briefly um it's it's how fascism messes with history and they mess with facts they they mess with truth um so at one point um i don't remember what episode i think it's during one of the isb meetings the the ISB or, or whoever it is refers to the Canary incident as an imperial um, mining accident. Mm-hmm. When we know for sure that it wasn't the Empire back then, it was the Republic. Yeah, we saw the sim- the symbols on the ship. Like, there's no question whatsoever. This was pre-Empire. Well, the Yet- the Republic never existed. It's always been the Empire. Exactly. They're, I think they're going full 1984. Yeah. Um, and it, it just muddies the water of history so that... Well, because it, not only that, but then they can say, well, the war against the separatists never ended. They were, they were rebels. Yeah, they were rebels the now. They've always been rebels. And so then it allows them to muddy it with the populace. Like, no, this war is just ongoing. It's never ended. This rebellion is just the separatists, the separatist rebellion. Remember all those those war film reels that we were showing you of the separatists? Those were rebels. This is all the rebellion continuing on. Well, it's a it's a lot like our approach to um, propagandizing our presence in the Middle East. Yeah, it's not yeah. that we're losing. Uh, we we definitely have won, you know, quote unquote, against this faction or that faction. It's just that now there's oh, a well, new one. These spinoff yeah. factions of that faction are are sp- are springing up, so the empire can be like, "Oh yeah, we by becoming a, an empire, we stomped out the separatists." But now they refer to rebel cells as separatist holdouts. Yeah, um, all the time. Like, oh yeah, they're just leftover separatists. We'll take care of them. Um, yeah. They're they're just people who are, are fighting their own private little war. They're they're off. Mm-hmm. You know, they they never gave up. They they're just one group on one planet in one system that just and we're never so got close, the message. We're so close to defeating them. We just need a little bit more money from the Senate. Mm-hmm. Continue funding the war machine. We, make we sure need a little bit more money. Stop. Keep sending it a little bit more. Um, hey, guys. Sorry, guys. Uh, we're we're going to have to monitor comms. We never know when these guys are going to strike, mm-hmm. um, but it's for we're your gonna protection. Start, we're going to have to start increasing uh, punishments to really try to reduce the amount of crime that's being done. So now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh man, we didn't want to have, you know, eternal labor, but we forced our hand. There's nothing we could do about it. They would that yep. port was gonna be coming becoming enacted no matter what. They were just waiting for the right incident. That port was written before Aldani. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um and you know it's it's like I've been saying, you know, fascism creeps and it it can be patient. Um, it can wait uh, either for something to happen or for it to manufacture something to respond to mm-hmm. um, so that it can 
roll out um like uh i had written it down somewhere but like they they roll out these what looked to be at the time common sense regulations um or or these common sense legislations the patriot act you know um stuff like that where you know that well they're going to tap into your phones to try and, and catch these terrorists well they're going to set up uh roadblocks and checkpoints to to check for a smuggling or, or weapons or whatever or, well hey you can't be out past a certain time anymore um we're, we've had an uptick in crime and one of the ways that we're going to keep you safe is by making sure that everybody who should be at home safe and sound they're home safe and sound when they need to be uh, we're going to put a platoon of stormtroopers here to keep you guys safe. Like yeah. these things just creep up and creep up and creep up. It's not like they hey, show up with a million star destroyers one day and they're like, Hey, uh, this place is ours. Now you guys all suck. You know how all those separatists were a bunch of aliens from the outer rim. Well, we need, we need to start monitoring all the aliens. We're going to start mm-hmm. sending the aliens, the spice mines Kessel, while the humans are sent to far nicer, but still incredibly brutal prisons. But there's a reason why all those it was all human at those, For those sure. facilities. It's because uh, the alien we've seen what happens to aliens. We saw Solo. The Wookiees all end up in the Spice Mine Kessel, handed mm-hmm. off to just a different corporation. They don't even the Empire doesn't even deal with it themselves. They just let a for-profit prison handle things. Um, Andor comes so close. Closer than anything we've ever had in Star Wars before um, to directly implementing a story that I've wanted to see for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think I mentioned it earlier. It's. It's where they just straight up say, like, the separatists weren't wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, their methodology wasn't necessarily right. They had a lot of bad players in the game for sure. But by and large, the separatists were regular people who were tired of being subjected to ever increasing laws, ever increasing taxes, ever increasing presence from a government that was so far away. Um, I, I have said this to you before, probably years ago. Um, I think that star Wars could be used as a, an amazingly good vehicle, specifically the prequel era. I think Star Wars could be used as a great vehicle to do a states' rights versus federal overreach story. Um, because there is a lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. Our own history with it is super fucked up because you can sit there and scream about states rights all you want. But at the end of the day, like the Louisiana constitution was like line one, we want slavery states line rights. two. What, states rights. <laughs> um, yeah. But there, there's a very, very real tangible argument to be had. Like mm-hmm. even right now, you know, we've got a government that's so far away from all the States of the union. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, we have such a, a wide range of culture. Um, all across the United States, you know, I, for our listeners, I live in Oklahoma. Um, an Oklahoma Democrat does not look like a New York Democrat. Um, their ideology is not the same by and large. It's not, um, their approach to, to problems, their, their solutions for things 
it doesn't always look the same and that's not a bad thing you yeah. know that's that's not to say that you know one one person's doing it better or whatever it's that we have so many different microcultures that have so many different problems that need to be addressed in different ways and when you try to wrap all of that up into one system and one umbrella the larger your system gets the more problems it's always going to have and i think star wars specifically doing like the republic versus the separatists can tell that story so well yeah because it's a huge galaxy you could tell any number of stories you want with that yeah because imagine now the whole you know federal government but on a galactic scale like this isn't a worldwide oh it isn't a worldwide or even you know nation scale like we've got that has many different cultures that you know the federal government can't always you know make sure it's balanced for everybody you're talking on a galactic scale with alien races that spent millions of years building their their civilization to the point at which it exists mm-hmm. now yeah and you're you're trying to to you know i'm assuming thousands of planet there's an un, you know an unending number of planets star wars is just going to keep making planets until yeah. you know the franchise ends but you got all these planets, all these systems, all these cultures. You're talking trillions of beings. Mm-hmm. And the Senate chamber on Coruscant was like, what, a couple thousand little disks of senators? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Each one of those is managing a few hundred worlds. Yeah. If, if that, um, yeah. you know, like Ahmed, uh, Padme was there, Amidala, Senator Amidala, she was just there for Naboo. Yeah. Hanging out in her little disc. Yeah. Trying to pass legislation for Naboo. Yeah, she's she's not there trying to pass legislation for probably any of the other systems around her, but she's an important system. Yeah. So she gets her own. That's well, yeah, I mean, it's human centric and it's they've got water and and plants. It's nice to be there. Um, Yeah. That's where Sheev came from. Uh, But but yeah, like. The, the larger and more complex your systems get, no matter what system it is, uh, it it starts to break down at a certain point. Um, yeah. It loses efficiency. And that's, you know, that's a conversation I've had with. You know, I'm I was in the military um, and, you know, one of the one of the few benefits of actually being in the military, uh, which, you know, this as well is you get exposed to people all over the spectrum of mm-hmm. politics beliefs culture uh it like it is genuinely the melting pot um and i've I've spoken with so many people and i'm like like dude you can you can talk shit about communism or socialism or capitalism or whatever you want the thing is is that every single system works in theory every single system works on a small scale and every single system breaks down to an extent the larger and larger it gets um, and I think Legends continuity got into that at a certain point after the New Jedi Order series that Yuzon Bong came in, wiped everything out, and um, I think afterwards they formed the Galactic Alliance of something or whatever. It was the GFA, the Galactic Federated Alliance. I know that because people refer to Star Wars Galaxy as the galaxy far, far away, GFFA. And so then mm-hmm. as a sort of inside joke, they said, oh, it's the Galactic Federated Alliance, so it's the GFA. Right. So right. it was actually, um, yeah. 
but you know that ended up being just a a federation um there is no one governing body there's just a bunch of people you know monitoring their own group of systems or whatever it was the galactic federation of free alliances hence gffa yeah gffa um in in my own um i ran a campaign for a while that was a star wars campaign taking place after rise of skywalker where the republic did not reform it's all the base basically all the different star systems were like no we've been through two republics and an empire and mm-hmm. a first order like they're like we're not doing this again and so they had all splintered into their own like sort of nation states across the galaxy so my my take on that i don't know that there is an answer um for a society that big yeah because a republic is doomed to fail for the exact same reasons that the prequel era republic failed mm-hmm. every single time it's going to be the same thing um greed corruption complacency trying to manage too much it's going to mm-hmm. fall apart the empire that inevitably replaces that is going to fall apart for the exact same reasons Mm-hmm. every single time yeah. um if you if you try to go for federated states or, or city states or whatever in this uh galactic society the exact same problems are always going to creep up we've got a border dispute mm-hmm. um we want to make a trade alliance we want to make you know a military alliance whatever it, it will inevitably creep back up to a stale inefficient bureaucracy mm-hmm. Um, and I, we're already seeing that in Andor. Um, you know, we're seeing it in the ISB. Uh, Major Partigas asks for reports and, you know, asks for the read on everybody's systems or whatever. And all these doofuses have like these binders of, um, of just like just bullshit metrics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's what happens in our, our own military. You go to write bullet points. Things, yeah. Yeah, you go to write some bullet points or something. It's like, oh, well, I I delivered, uh, you know, this many thousand um, uh, rounds of ammunition, uh, which uh, equates to this many, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and and saved this much, you know, whatever. Like, it's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's all about putting out the biggest numbers you can. And the ISB meetings are the exact same way. They're like, oh, well, we, uh, you know, we monitored, you know, this many thousand uh, people and prevented this, you know, an estimated this much crime, which saved us an estimated this much money. And that's, mm-hmm. that is the bureaucracy that yeah. creeps into every system and helps to lead to the stagnation of those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which is why part of gas is so like thrilled in a college teacher sort of way when, uh, you know, um, What's his name? The the one ISB officer is like, oh yeah, Deidre's bad news, and I'm formally accusing her of breaking the rules, and she's like, uh, yeah, dude, I did break the rules, and here's why, mm-hmm. and throws it all in his face. Partigas ate that shit up. He loved it because yeah. she was doing something different, and she's doing something that works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. We have now wandered all over the galaxy, 
even into like deep into legends and back again and came all the way back around to Andor, which good for I would us. say expect expect that pretty often. Yeah, I'm yeah. a wandering I'm a wandering yeah. guy. So uh, this episode is running a bit long, so I think we're going to go ahead and skip the uh, the, the sort of trivia um, about the galaxy. Um, we will push that on to the, the next week. Um, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. So do you have anything else you want to say before we uh, get out of here? Don't. Um, just the glad to be here. Glad to talk about Star Wars with another true believer. Mm-hmm. Um, looking forward to the next topic, the next conversation, and all of the tangents that will bring us. Absolutely. And uh, we've still got one more episode of Andor to go, so... Um, I'm not ready. No. I think we're not going to have like a, more than a year. So we're going to have to wait it out. And I, I'm not going to be able to stand it. Yeah. It's going to be a rough one, but it'll yeah. be worth it. It will. So, uh, thank you everybody for tuning back in to our uh, sequel era now that we've got for the podcast. Uh, you know, new characters and old. And uh, we